This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Serhii Plohi, author of The Frontline Essays on Ukraine's Past and Present, published by Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute in 2021. Serhii Plohi is the Mikhailo Hrushevsky Professor of Ukrainian History and the Director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. His interests include intellectual, cultural, and international history of Eastern Europe and political and cultural history of World War II and the Cold War. He is the author of a number of books, including Ukraine and Russia, Representations of the Past, The Last Empire, The Final Days of the Soviet Union, The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, Chernobyl, History of a Tragedy. His books won numerous awards, including the Lionel Gelber Prize for the Best English Language Book on the International Relations and the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. Uh, hello, Sergei. Thank you so much for joining me today and congratulations on your most recent book. Uh, thank you very much, Natalia, and thank you for inviting me to this interview. I really, really appreciate it and look forward to our discussion. So, The Frontline is a collection of essays which were written initially at different stages of your research career. And in the opening part, you mentioned that this collection documents historical and political developments that you would like to explain to yourself and to your reading audiences. Uh, The scope of your research is impressive, but I'm wondering what events or developments um, have been so far most puzzling uh, to you and confusing to you as a historian and as well as a writer. Uh, what historical events ask for the largest amount of side notes? But that's probably how one may feel about the history of Ukraine in general. Well, uh, most of the essays that uh, appear in the collection were written and published in the last seven to ten years. Uh, some of them, a number of them, appear in the collection for the first time. And the last seven years turned out to be a very, very important uh, period in the history of Ukraine and development of our understanding of Ukraine, Ukraine today, and Ukrainian past as well. So 2013, that's the start of the uh, first Euro revolution that turns into the revolution of dignity. 2014 brings the Russian annexation of the Crimea, the start of the war in Donbass that continues till today. And uh, those developments are important in their own right in terms of maybe setting a new agenda for for, the sort of questions that we ask ourselves about Ukrainian society, Ukrainian politics, and Ukrainian history. Uh, But also those events uh, made their way into the mainstream in the West of of the Western media, TV, to a degree that um, Ukraine became central part of the first impeachment of President Trump. The impeachments are not something that happens in the American history every day. The first impeachment of President Trump was the first and the only so far impeachment which was based on the accusation on the uh, mismanagement by the president or or violation of his prerogatives in terms of the foreign policy. And Ukraine was right and center in that that, uh, uh, scandal. So in the last seven years, uh, one way or another, I um, and probably others also had to react to this changed 
atmosphere around and around Ukraine, a growing interest in Ukraine. And in that sense, uh, the, the uh, essays that are collected in uh, in uh, the front in the in the in collection that is called Frontline uh, are reflection of this uh, of the times that we are living in and the times in which they were written. Again, uh, none of them deals uh, specifically with the events of the last seven years. Again, there would be references here and there. Uh, the uh, essays cover the period of Ukrainian history from the uh, 16th and the early 17th century until uh, the beginning of the 21st century. But the quintessential uh, uh, question that I was trying to answer in those essays, and I didn't realize that when I was writing them, I came to that realization when I was working on the on putting them together in that collection was... What is so special about Ukraine? Why Ukraine keeps finding itself at the center of the major international developments and major international controversies as well. So as you just mentioned, Ukraine has been at the epicenter of the most uh, tumultuous, probably and disruptive at times events in the history, not only of Europe, but probably we can also say uh, of the world as well. Uh, and I really appreciate the collection of maps which are included uh, in this uh, recent publication. But uh, I was curious if... Um, there is some sort of dissonance between uh, geographical position of Ukraine and, so to speak, memorial position of Ukraine on the international memorial map. Uh, was Ukraine really visible in terms of international memorial map until recently? Um, well, uh, one of my essays, again, the first essay that, that opens the collection uh, is called Putting Ukraine on the Map of Europe. And it, it, it treats that particular statement very literally in the sense that the essay looks at the first case when Ukraine is mentioned on the map. In, in that case, that was the map that was sponsored by the, one of the key figures in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania in the 16th and the beginning of the 17th century. But there is certainly a metaphorical also layer to... to uh, 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 ring to that to that question as well. And uh, in metaphorical terms, Ukraine appears on the map of memory of Europe, of the world, uh, much later, of course. It is not 16th century, it is not 17th century. It is really, in a major way, I would say, the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st. And it is associated with the fact that, first of all, Ukraine becomes an independent country. And the, the news of, of, of history, clear, one way or another, favors the, the countries that have their states, that, 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 that are, what, what used to be called a historical nations. So Ukraine, for the first time, becomes a sort of a historical nation after 1991, and that's also a ticket to, the, to this club of the, of the other nations, and it becomes more visible on the, on the European map and uh, the historical map of the world. What happens in the process is the, the uh, uh, reappropriation of certain themes, of certain subjects that were already on that map, but were not associated with Ukraine. And uh, uh, one, one of the most obvious, uh, obvious cases of that is the history of the Holocaust. And again, the, the Holocaust was there for a long period of time, at least since 50s and 60s. Uh, but it was associated not uh, so much with Ukraine. It was associated certainly with the uh, World War II in general. And when it comes to the Holocaust by bullets, again, a relatively new development, that comes to the fore um, recently and associated with the Soviet Union or with Russia. Uh, the fact that a good part of the Holocaust by bullets is taking place on the territory of Ukraine, this is, this is a new development in terms of thinking, conceptualization, and mapping of certain, certain developments. And again, it's, it's, it's a challenge not only for the history of the Second World War, but it's also a change for Ukrainian uh, historians and society at large what, what to do with that. 
Another, uh, another example uh, is the history of the Second World War in general, the history of World War I, when um, Ukraine was actually basically absent from the, from the narratives of those global events and global developments. Uh, but now we have books like the one written by the Cleveland on the World War I, where there are uh, quite well uh, founded statements that a good part of the World War I on the Eastern Front was fought over the issue of Ukraine and, and control over Ukraine, something that, again, didn't, didn't occur to anybody. Uh, before uh, before last last few uh, decades, and final final example, which is maybe the closest to my own research, and is also related to two essays in the collection, is the history of Chernobyl and Chernobyl nuclear disaster. It is it exists in the in the imagination of the world as the worst nuclear disaster that happened. Uh, at, at any time in history since the start of the nuclear age. But to what degree this is about Ukraine, to what degree just the, the nuclear power plant uh, happened to be in Ukraine, that was the question that was not even asked for, for a long period of time. It's about the history of, of the nuclear energy in general, about the Soviet Union, about the Cold War, but hardly, hardly about Ukraine, when uh, for Ukraine, Chernobyl had a major, major significance that goes beyond uh, the, the issues of nuclear energy and served as a trigger for the, uh, for the movement, for the start of the movement for Ukrainian independence and at the end also uh, end of the Soviet Union. So again, I, I will not continue with those examples. I can, I can certainly continue. I, I talk about uh, some of the cases that I discussed here in the, uh, in the uh, book, in the collection, but uh, Ukraine is appearing uh, on the map in a major way for the, really for the first time. And it appears in its own right. And it also appears in the way that some parts of history in particular are being re appropriated and reinterpreted. And uh, my collection of essays, I would say, is a step in, in that direction as part of that broader process. Mm -hmm. Just to follow up on this uh, comment, uh, you mentioned that Ukraine has to write a new national history, and at the same time there is a danger of nationalizing history against which you warn, not only in this collection, but in your previous connections, specifically in Ukraine and Russia representations of the past. So what's this new national history which is not nationalizing and nationalized? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, yes, the, 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 introduction, the introduction to the collection, I pose a question about the need for writing new national history, not just for Ukraine, but, but probably thinking about this, this genre of history writing in general as, as, as a new type of genre, sort of reinventing it. Uh, because what happened uh, uh, in the last few decades was really a clash of uh, maybe two, two different processes and two demands. On the one hand, we see the uh, process of globalization and internationalization of many things, which uh, found its reflection also in thinking about history. And the, the beginning uh, or attempts to create new kind of history uh, for example, in the European Union, a, a sponsored attempt, a new community new, needs a new understanding of history, and, and this is absolutely true. This new understanding of history comes, of course, at the expense of the, of the um, national history, traditionally written national narratives. But then, by the beginning of the, of the 21st century, a very interesting development happens. And this is development is, of course, the, it starts in the 1990s. The uh, expansion of the European Union, which uh, welcomes a significant uh, new members from the East in particular, for whom the issue of the uh, national history, national sovereignty, extremely important. They come out of existence of either losing their independence and national, national um, 
sovereignty and and uh, um, stopping being an actor in the international arena altogether. This is the case, for example, of the Baltic states, or having uh, some limited sovereignty, like it was the case with Poland, for example, or Romania, or Hungary, and so on and so forth. They never actually finished the process of the of the writing and, and thinking in national terms uh, about about their history under under communism. So they, they turned out to be not ready really to to move all the way into that stage where the historians of France, the historians of of, of Germany, for that matter, uh, were uh, were at that at that time and at that point. And the question is then, what do you do with this need and drive to new national histories? And this is the, the, the trend that is not limited to the, to the um, uh, Europe only. You look at the entire uh, post-colonial world. You look at the world in which most of the countries are the countries of former colonies that are still going through the process of the formation of their their nations and their national narratives. So imposing a particular particular model of writing of history uh, that developed, let's say, in Europe or in the United States on the rest of the world uh, simply didn't work. And uh, the question is, uh, if, if it didn't work, uh, what, what to do next? That should we keep pushing in the same direction? Uh, or or uh, maybe take a step back and think about what is going on around us and, and, and how to deal with those. And in my solution for myself, okay, this is a problem I have to think about. Did I have to come up with some? It came as, as a, again, of... Ukraine entering the news, making the headlines. In the, uh, I was approached by a publisher with the um, request to write the history of Ukraine. So not history of Eastern Europe, not history of Europe, not history of the world, not history of medicine, not history of nuclear energy. Uh, the events, the events uh, uh, put on the agenda the question of what is Ukraine, where did it come from, what the conflict is about, and the, the uh, implicitly the, the, the request was write for us a history of national history of that particular country, like there is history of Germany, or there is history of Romania, or there is history of the United States. And uh, uh, the question was how to write that national history without falling into the, into the uh, pitfalls uh, of the national history of the past, which was very often ethnocentric, uh, which uh, was the, the history that, that really uh, prioritized, privileged one ethnic group over, over another that used an old and outdated, uh, not just terminology, but also instruments in painting those histories, again, the national history is being born, we say mostly in the 19th century. So my solution was to, to bring into the history of Ukraine as a territory, as a society, uh, the, the achievements from, from uh, the fields of non-national history as they emerged in the last maybe 50 years. And again, I treated very seriously such thing as, as a cultural turn. Certainly I was interested in identities. So these are parts that were not part uh, of, of the, uh, or these are the, the approaches that were not part of the traditional national history. Elements of international history are there as well. Multi-ethnic history also is a component. I tried to organize all of that around the idea of uh, history of Ukraine as, as a, a history of formation and transformation of cultures, political cultures and other cultures. So this is one of the approaches, one of the examples. Again, it is fully reflected in the, in the articles and essays that uh, went into the, into the um, collection. So um, again, that's 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 that was my take on what what to do with the national histories at the time 
when there is a request for them on the part of the societies that are emerging from out of this imperial imperial setting, when there is a, a demand for that in general public in the United States and, and in Europe, and they want to know more about the newly created state and how how uh, to to deal with this demand and also meet it with this the, the latest maybe developments or the latest trends that we have in, in history of the physical. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So um, would you uh, expand a little bit more on this idea of writing probably new national uh, histories? And uh, this issue pertains not only to Ukraine, but to other neighbors as well. And particularly, it pertains to Russia. Uh, you mentioned in your book that um, uh, Ukrainian history is a battleground. And of course, first and foremost, we mean all those narratives which are suggested, offered and promoted by Russia today uh, in particular. So um, how would this repositioning of uh, national history probably or this reconsideration or rewriting, well, we can use different terms uh, here, could help probably uh, change the focus of how the history of Ukraine is seen and understood globally. Um, I'm asking this question because still uh, more often than not, the history of Ukraine, unfortunately, uh, is seen through the perspective of those histories and those narratives which are uh, taken uh, from or promoted by uh, the Russian narratives. Uh, Ukrainian history is not unique in that way. Uh, again, the history of almost any nation, any any country that uh, emerges out of the imperial setting is, uh, for a long period of time, ha- has been looked at through the prism again of the of the imperial history. The the empires uh, create uh, create uh, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, narratives which are quite sophisticated narratives and quite uh, influential narratives in the world. And it, it certainly takes time for, for any new country to establish itself, to establish its own identity. And uh, the way how it is done normally is that you go through the, or the, the historians or the, the, the people associated with those countries, certainly they, they try talk to the, uh, uh, talking to the world through the through the facts, through the interpretations that are already known, and very often they are they, they are created by the empires. And the question is how to reinterpret that history of the empires. And that is, uh, again, the, the, the process that happens on a number of tracks. And uh, one of those tracks is certainly the reinterpretation of the history of the empire by the, by the imperial group, by the imperial nation, by the... By the by the metropolis itself. And uh, uh, up until the 20th century, all the histories of the empires were written as na- national histories mostly. And uh, that, that, that process of reinterpretation again happens today in, in uh, Great Britain, it happens in, in, in France. It also started to take place in Russia. A group of uh, historians around um, the uh, journal Art in Area put together a two-volume um, work that is called the New Imperial History. So, rewriting the history of um, Russian Empire as basically imperial history. Uh, the first attempt—it's very surprising—but the first attempt to do that came also only in the 1980s and came from outside of Russia and the Soviet Union. Andreas Kapler wrote the first book of the Russian Empire as an empire, and uh, that is uh, that is the, the process that, that is underway also in Russia. And uh, again, the, the 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 task is as we we reform our understanding of the history of the post-Soviet space, it's extremely important that the dialogue 
between the historians in Ukraine, between the historians uh, in the West, and also uh, including uh, as important participants those historians in Russia actually are uh, are working on the, on the same project because again it's it's uh, the uh, reinterpreting of that history or quote unquote rewriting of that history is is something that uh, that really requires uh, more than more than one actor in, in all that story because whatever history is there it has to be it has to be accepted uh, it, it has to be legitimate in the eyes not only of those who create that history, but also in the eyes of the, of the world as a whole, the international community of scholars. Mm-hmm. So the two chapters of the front line focus on Pereyaslav and Hadic, uh, through uh, two trajectories that uh, could present uh, two different historical scenarios for Ukraine. Uh, the Pereyaslav scenario, however, became reality, while the Hadic scenario remained some sort of a lost opportunity for something better. Uh, it's interesting how you emphasize this juxtaposition of diametric possibilities. And in this approach, Ukraine is presented in some in-between place. Uh, On the other hand, Ukraine was also exercising some influence on other political entities. And this is one of the points that you are emphasizing in your collection in general. Ukraine uh, is and was not only a land that is divided by states, but it is also a political entity that in some way participates in these developments. Uh, The issue is, however, how the agency of Ukraine can be revealed and made more visible, while this visibility was not only minimized, but also eliminated over the uh, uh, centuries by Russo-centric historiography that prevailed uh, specifically in the West as well for a long time. So how do we read the Pryaslav Agreement, for instance, in the way where agency is given not only to Russia? Um. Pereyaslav Agreement of 1654, this is the start of relations between um, the the Cossack hetmanate, which later become the foundation for for modern Ukraine, and the the, um, the Tsardom of Moscow, that would later become the foundation for for Russia. Uh, The sort of the relationship that, of course, lasts lasts till today and the beginning of them is in Pereyaslav in 1654. Um, what is uh, uh, much more clear in Pereyaslav than at any maybe other point in the history of um, Ukrainian-Russian relations until the revolution and, and uh, emergence of Ukrainian state in 1918 is that uh, Ukraine uh, enters, enters this relationship um, on its own terms uh, and uh, it, it believes that uh, it enters the relationship that uh, are of a different kind that than they eventually turn out to be. When I say on its own terms, is that at the moment of this um, debates and discussions and, and uh, before the reaching the agreement in Pereyaslav in 1654, there is a sort of a, a little scandal takes place in Pereyaslav when the representatives of the of the Cossack officer uh, elite, and in particular Hetman Bogdan Khmelnytsky, they insist in their negotiations with the uh, representative of the Tsar, Boyer Buturlin, that Buturlin, in the name of the Tsar, would swore, uh, sworn on the uh, um, oath, uh, make oath on those conditions in the name of the Tsar. And Buturlin refuses to do that because there are... Tsars don't do that. And uh, the, the Cossack officers eventually accept that. Uh, but while they rebel again in place in 1658, there would be Cossack uprisings much later because the Cossacks believed that they were entering the relationship with the Russian Tsar where each side in that agreement had their own obligations. And the obligation of the Tsar was to protect the rights and privileges of the Cossack Cossack class elite and protect Ukraine as a whole. If the Tsar fails to do those things, the deal is off. And that was exactly the argument that Hetman Mazepa put forward in 1708 and 1709, the subject of another 
essay that went into the into the collection, where the argument was that the Tsar refused to protect Ukraine against the Swedish invasion, and as the result of that, the deal the deal reached with Yaslav uh, doesn't doesn't work, doesn't apply anymore. So uh, the the, the uh, through all this period between 1654 and 1708, 1709. The Cossack officer class insisted on its own uh, uh, on um, its own interpretation of the agreement. Certainly, it, it presented itself and was an actor in, in all that story. The Battle of Poltava, seventeen oh nine, of course, made uh, made a major major difference in that entire story. It was a turning point, not just in the history of Eastern Europe, but first and foremost in the history of Ukraine. Because the, the, the period of um, maybe unequal relationship, but still negotiations going on between, between the Cossack hetmanate and the Russian Tsar, they came to an end around 1709. So, and uh, there is another insightful discussion of the history of Rus uh, in this collection, and this discussion gives some insights into how the figure of Mazepa, for example, could be seen. And you also mentioned Dibovich's conversation between Great and Little Russia, and these two texts are put into this context of uh, how, in fact, Ukraine could have been seen by um by, well, we can say Ukrainians or uh, Malarus uh, back uh, in the 19th uh, century or 18th century. So um, um, I would like to uh, quote one paragraph because um, your interpretation of um, the um, um, anonymous author of um, the history of Rus is quite um, intriguing, uh, particularly in terms of today's politics of memory and uh, in terms of our understanding of uh, all these memorial contestations, let's put it this way, between Ukraine and Russia. So this is page uh, 84. The anonymous author also emerges from the pages of his history as the first Ukrainian intellectual to struggle with the notion of the religious and ethnic closeness of Russians and Ukrainians. He recognizes the depth of the cultural association between the two nations, but rejects the actions of the popular masses informed by that affinity. Instead, he turns the affinity into his principal weapon, claiming Ukraine's historical primacy as the Rus nation, attributing the Rus name almost exclusively to his compatriots, and trying to shame the Russian state and society into granting equal rights to their little uh, Russian brethren. So I'm wondering what these two documents help reveal uh, in terms of these confrontations that has been going on for centuries today. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, 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 it's a very important, important development in Ukrainian intellectual history, which sometimes it's, it's difficult, difficult really to grasp and, and understand, partially because you deal with the end, they dealt with the issues of uh, Rus, Russia, Little Russia, Great Russia, and, and declared themselves to be the true, the true children, the true descendants of Rus. So what does this mean in all this context? How to translate that into the, into the modern language that would be understood in the 20th century? Well, what happened was that the uh, Poltava Battle of 1709 that I just uh, referred to, it uh, put an end to a development of a particular type of the Cossack and Ukrainian identity that uh, dissociated itself from the, from the uh, Rus and origins in Kiev. The, the Cossacks um, and Cossack intellectuals developed the idea of the Hazar origins of the Cossacks, separating themselves from, from Kiev. The, the Battle of Poltava put, puts end uh, to, that, to that process, which led not just to separation from Kiev, but also separation from the confusion caused by the Rus, Russia, and Moscow at the same time. And the dominant, the dominant term and identity associated with it becomes Little Russia, where, um, yes, it is different from, from Great Russia, but it is, it is still part of a, of a bigger, of a bigger uh, world defined by that term. 
the, the term, the, 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 the role that goes back to the origins of Kievanism. And in the 19th century, with the rise of modern nationalism, the, the um, new generation of uh, Ukrainian elite, they're trying to separate themselves from that, from that connection. And uh, the author of the history of the Rus is the one who tries to do that still within the old, um, the old paradigm and the, the old selection of the, of the words. So to do that within the concept of Rus, of broader Rus. And he tries to say that the, the, the Cossacks and the Ukrainians are separate people, first of all. But they're uh, being separate. They are more, to a degree, Rus, Russian or Russian than Russians themselves, because they come from Kiev. Uh, so there is a claim for a separate nation in the making, but there is still confusion about, about the terms. And that confusion really comes to an end um, later by the, by the second half of the 19th century when the uh, fathers or, and, and mothers of, of the Ukrainian national project, and there were mothers uh, as well when you look at uh, um, writers in particular, and, and Markov of Chok, and, and uh, Lena Pchilka, and Nesil Ukrainka, and so on and so forth. So fathers and mothers of the Ukrainian uh, modern nation, they decide to, to leave aside that confusion about Rus and Russia, and who is more, who, who is more Russian and who has, has more rights for, for that term and word, and go with the term Ukraine, which became a part of the Ukrainian historical memory, Ukrainian folklore, because it was so closely associated with the Cossack state, with the hetmanate. And um, the, the uh, essay that you, that you refer to, it uh, discusses this moment when Mazepa is rediscovered in the 19th century as a positive figure. And uh, the idea of Ukraine as a separate nation is being emerged, but it's not yet has the, the names, the labels, the attributes. Uh, it, it's not as recognizable yet as it becomes later in the century. So another chapter, The Red Century, which is titled The Red Century, and specifically the subchapter How Russian Was the Russian Revolution, touches upon the formation of the USSR. And the um, end of this, um, um, of this uh, essay, uh, uh, well, personally, I interpret as some sort of a response to uh, Putin's infamous recent uh, essay in which uh, he says that Ukrainians received their state only thanks to the Soviet government, which Ukrainians want to break away from today. And um, there is this um, another quote that I would like to share. Um, it's page 93. Lenin's victory created a separate republic within the Union for the Russians, endowing them with a territory, institutions, population, and identity distinct from those of the Union as a whole. So it's quite opposite from, uh, well, to some extent, from what uh, Putin was saying. Um, so uh, to, uh, what was the role of Ukraine in the formation of the USSR and how legitimate or legal or legitimate is Putin's claim that Ukrainians received their state only uh, thanks to the uh, Soviet Union? Um, well, uh, mm, mm, the, the question is really what was uh, first the, the uh, Ukrainian independence or uh, the Soviet Union? Mm -hmm. And uh, the answer to this question is obvious to anyone who uh, knows how to Google and to, to uh, consult Wikipedia or any other, uh, any other online source. We have certainly a declaration, uh, two declarations of independence uh, in, in 1918, uh, the Declaration of the Unity of um, uh, Ukrainian People's Republic centered in Kiev and Western Ukrainian Republic centered in, in Lviv and then in Stanislavia or Ivano-Frankivsk today, uh, and uh, the Soviet Union is really being a creation of a few years later in 1922. Uh, so that's, that's just the, the, the facts and chronology. Uh, the, 
another question, again, related to that is why the Soviet Union is there. And uh, there were uh, two, two uh, certainly uh, visions of how the, the Bolsheviks would legitimize their control over the post-imperial space and how they would organize that space. And one was associated with Joseph Stalin, who argued that it has to be a Russian federation and it can include other republics as autonomous republics, but basically it would be one Russian state. And uh, there was an alternative vision that was presented and defended by Lenin that there has to be a union state consisting of a number of republics and Russia would be one of those, one of those republics, one of those states. Well, why Lenin takes this position? Lenin takes this position because of the strong response and the position to Stalin's lie that comes from the communist elite, I, I stress communist elites in two republics, in Georgia and in Ukraine. So they had to be accommodated in some way and form because they rejected the idea, the idea of the union. And we are not talking now about Rushevsky, about Petlura. We are talking about people like Rakovsky and others who basically realized that they were able to establish their control in Ukraine and would continue that, that control over Ukraine if they make concessions to the Ukrainian national movement. It was already there before the revolution. It applied momentum during the revolution and uh, forced, forced uh, whoever was the outside force to take it into account. And from that point of view, the recognition of the, some form of Ukrainian autonomy in the form of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, the uh, cultural, uh, cultural uh, Ukrainization, those were concessions uh, with the hope of impose full control over the republic and and uh, certainly to impose the control of the communist uh, communist ideology, which was achieved. So that is uh, that is the the uh, story about who created whom and when. Um, again, Ukraine from from that point of view, from that perspective, was played a key role in the formation of the Soviet Union, like. Ukrainian referendum later, in December of 1991, uh, played a key role in the disintegration of the USSR. So uh, I would argue, and that is certainly the argument that I present in the in the essay, that Ukrainian was central for the for the existence of the Soviet Union from the very beginning till the end. Again, it's it's uh, dependent on the period. It it could be more. It could play more important role or less important role. But it was it was uh, uh, overall uh, a major factor historically in, in the history of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, completing this uh, Soviet uh, period or Soviet chapter of your book, you also make a statement that the fall of the USSR is far from being uh, over, uh, and in spite of the fact that it's been more than thirty years chronologically. So what? does seem not to be completed so far in terms of the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, the, the, the fact that the Soviet Union has not, uh, the, the, the process of, of its disintegration has not uh, came to an end yet, very obvious when you look certainly at what is happening today in Ukraine. Uh, for a long period, and, and this is war, this is annexation, this is the change of the borders, this is millions of refugees, tens of thousands of people who were killed or wounded. And uh, in 1991, there was this moment of euphoria, end of history, uh, moment to the, the belief in the victory, final victory of the, of the uh, liberal democracy in the world. Um, uh, where uh, it it seemed like the fall of the Soviet Union didn't follow the pattern of the disintegration of other multi-ethnic states and other empires. That it happened basically with, not completely without blood, the world was clashes and, and conflicts in, in Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan was involved, there was uh, force used in the Baltics, but it was uh, not, there was no major war. 
There were no major conflicts, at least at the moment of disintegration. And it looked for a while that that, that was it. That was the end. December 26, Gorbachev goes in front of the TV cameras saying that he is resigning because there was no union for him to lead anymore. And that's, that's the end. Well, what followed after that, of course, was Chechnya. What followed after that were conflicts in, in Moldova. What followed after that was never-ending war within, uh, between Azerbaijan and, and Romania. And all of that, unfortunately, fits the pattern of the disintegration of the empires that takes more than, more than it doesn't happen overnight, takes longer period of time. And unfortunately, uh, the, that, that process is, is violent. And uh, I, with the uh, continuing war going on in Donbass, with unsettled issues in Moldova, with unsettled issues in relations between, uh, between um, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, I don't see, I, I'm not prepared to declare at that point that the, the process of the disintegration of the um, Soviet Union is over. New conflicts can come to the fore, like uh, no one expected the, the uh, Russian move and annexation of the Crimea, the, the annexation of the other countries' territory for the first time since the Second World War. So uh, unfortunately, there can be, can be other surprises like that uh, in the future. And the borders of Russian Federation also are, are not stable. If you look at Chechnya and what is happening there, this is really de facto already, um, not just an autonomous state, but a semi-independent state. So there, there questions remain as well. Mm-hmm. So I would like to um, shift our focus to education, maybe, um, just for our final question. Uh, there is this long-lasting attempt, um, particularly over the last 30 uh, years, to make the Ukrainian narrative more visible. And the current Russo-Ukrainian war is very eloquent in this case. Uh, the tradition that developed in the West uh, to focus solely on the study of Russia is slow to change. Uh, and uh, very often, uh, those who start studying the uh, region in general will ask this question, how different Ukraine is from Russia? Russia. Uh, and it's very often based on the language issue as well. But uh, you also, we, we didn't uh, touch upon that section, but uh, in your book, you also discuss the Chernobyl tragedy and you mention all those um, media productions uh, which were created around the tragedy. And you mentioned the Russian Woodpecker and uh, HBO series, um, well-known HBO series. And still, uh, those are not Ukrainian voices. And those, well, particularly in terms of the Russian narratives, those are not Ukrainian narratives. And unfortunately, this uh, tragedy that took place in Ukraine in the first place is known, again, in the context of Russia. Uh, And uh, Ukraine, again, uh, remains a little bit uh, invisible in this conversation very often, unfortunately. So, of course, there is some politics in this question, but still, um, it's also a challenge for educational programs. How does Ukraine make its voice more distinct without being muted by the uh, Russian version, which seems to persevere, uh, to preserve its power, uh, partially because this is the version with which um, many are familiar, uh, because that's the primary uh, interest when they study the, the region. But again, even when the focus shifts to Ukraine, the perspective is somehow uh, distorted through the uh, uh, Russian narratives. Uh, this is certainly true, but I would say that it is changing, especially in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. The tendency that I see in the course of the, especially the last five, six, seven years, is um, more visibility of Ukraine. We started our discussion with that about putting Ukraine on the map of memory, but also on the, on the, on the map of imagination of the world. Uh, and uh, what, uh, what is basically uh, lacking so far and has been lacking so far was the active position of the Ukrainian state. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, only now awakes to the to the understanding that uh, spreading knowledge 
about the country, about its culture, about its history, about its politics. It's an important part of being an independent state. So Ukraine, Ukrainians only learn to live in the, in the independent state and use all the advantages that come with that. So um, the last, in the last two or three years, we have uh, emergence of the institutions that actually think that this is important, uh, important task to perform in terms of the public, in terms of the public diplomacy. So uh, again, the, um, the situation changes. Um, it changes maybe sometimes on the margins. And uh, one of the problems and one of the issues is that uh, relatively few uh, people and intellectuals in Ukraine actually are able to communicate effectively with the rest of the world. And again, that is something that can be changed overnight. Uh, this, is, this is a process, sometimes the process that involves change of the generations. Uh, but uh, uh, despite all the difficulties, I'm quite optimistic when it comes to the future in terms of uh, Ukraine establishing its own identity in the minds of the uh, of intellectuals in the mind of the academic community in the mind of the of the public at large uh, uh, I, I I think uh, again it, it, it will not happen overnight as I said but uh, it, it, it will happen and we We already seen that happen. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. And again, congratulations on your book. And thank you for your book uh, that offers a comprehensive commentary on the most contested and controversial issues and that attempts to uh, inscribe Ukraine in a broader global historical and political context. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natalia. It was a real pleasure. Today I spoke with Sergei Plohi, author of the Frontline Essays on Ukraine's Past and Present, published by Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute in 2021. Thank you for listening to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.